0: Um, you're definitely going to want a Bible in your hands for this morning. We're going to be um, marching our way through quite a bit of text. So raise a paw if you're missing one. And one of these fine gentlemen is going to uh, hand one out to you. Raise a paw, yeah. Do you not say that? Raise a paw. <laughs> it's what dogs do. We made a snow dog yesterday in our garden. Man, that was cool. <laughs> our kids are really ambitious for what it's possible to do out of snow anyway. It had pink ears and everything. It was great. Why am I telling you all this stuff? Um, let's pray um, before we get stuck in, um, and then uh, we'll read this text and get moving. God in heaven, um, we just pray so much that you would help us as we gather together this morning just to look straight to you. Um, that's our heart's desire. Um, there's nothing in this world that compares to you. Uh, there's nothing that's solid like you, nothing that holds us through the storm like that song said uh, nothing like you. And so God, we pray that you would help us just to look past um, our ourselves, past anything in this room, past distractions that are coming at us from the week or the week ahead. Help us just to lay those things down at your feet um, and tune right in to listen to your still small voice. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and God, that you would change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we are. This is the final message in Acts after nearly 18 months marching through this book. Um, And just as the whole thing has been kind of an adventure story all the way along, it's been the adventure of the the emergence and growth of the church, the church of which we ourselves are now part, and we're now carrying that torch forward. Um, Well, now we end the book with an authentic adventure story, um, the story of Paul's journey to Rome. And there's going to be a lot for us to digest here, but my thought was that we would just kind of plunge right into the middle of the action and read a section from it so that we can get a feel for it. Um, And then when we're done, we'll we'll stand back and see whether we can't get a bit more kind of uh, broader context on it and see what God has to teach us. Um, So we're going to dive right in. Will you stand with me? Um, Flip to Acts chapter 27. Uh, We're going to start reading at verse 13, and we're going to be joining Paul and Luke Um, and about 270 other people on an Alexandrian merchant ship somewhere just off the southern coast of Crete in deep into the month of October in AD 59. Are you ready? Here we go. Acts 27, verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force Called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm. It could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid that they would run aground on the sandbars of Surtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Okay, that's our text, so take a seat. (laughs) Kind of unexpected for some of us, I guess, who are unfamiliar with this part of the Bible. You know, we flip open the Bible expecting to read the Beatitudes or the Ten Commandments or something. Here we are, we flip it open and we're like in the middle of the Poseidon adventure. What is going on? Um, (laughs) So what I want to do is just give you a bit of perspective on how Paul and Luke got themselves into this mess. Um, And uh, we're going to Uh, Look back at some of the the details earlier on in that chapter um, just to get a bit of context. Um, For those of you who've been with us through the series, you'll remember a little bit of the background here. Uh, In the previous story, we had Paul standing trial in Caesarea three times. And at the end of his second trial, he appeals uh, to the Roman emperor, to Caesar, to have his case heard there. So that's what's happening now. Paul is traveling to Italy in order to stand before the emperor. And um at the end of uh at the beginning of chapter twenty seven, the end of chapter twenty six, we see Festus, the Roman governor of Judea, writing a letter uh with all of the information he's managed to assemble about who Paul is and uh what the Jews have got against him, uh, to send to uh up to Nero so that Nero knows what it is uh when Paul stands in front of him for, for trial. And then Festus hands Paul over to a Roman centurion, a guy called Julius. Um, with a handful of other prisoners who are making the same journey. Uh, And we find uh, that Paul is accompanied also by two friends. Uh, He has a guy with him called Aristarchus, uh, who he first met on the second missionary journey in Thessalonica. Um, And he also has Luke with him. And that's cool because Luke wrote this. So what we're going to have here, everything in our story is all eyewitness testimony. Uh, Luke was right there in the boat with Paul, which I guess kind of makes it all the more exciting to have something that's just lifted right out of that period. Um, what we find is that Julius the centurion, who's given charge of Paul and the other prisoners, he's the, um, uh, the commander of a, just a regular Roman regiment. So he doesn't have a boat or anything. Um, so when he's given this job to take these prisoners to Rome, he has to improvise. And um, we know, if we were here for the last one, that he's in a good place for improvising a way to Rome because he's in Caesarea. So maybe we could just knock out the lights. We're going to just show some images here. Ch-ch-ch-ch. Here they come. Fantastic. Okay. So this is the picture we had last time. This is the artificial harbor that Herod the Great built in Caesarea. And you can imagine the scene. We've got Julius up here somewhere on the land. He's given this job, transport prisoners to Rome. And so he takes a walk down this long artificial island, talking to the sea captains uh, at the different places where these boats are moored up, saying, is anybody willing? Has anybody got some space uh, where me and my men and these prisoners can uh, travel and begin their journey to Rome. And sure enough, he finds a boat tied up there, which comes from a place called Adramitium. Now, this is the, the map of the Mediterranean we've been using throughout this journey at Axe. Adramitium's way up there, and um, Caesarea, where Paul is, is down here. Okay. So Julius the Centurion thinks, okay, that might work. That's going to get us going at least for the first step of our journey. Um, the Adramitian boat is a trading vessel. It's been coming round this coast, bringing goods from Asia and uh, dropping them off in Syria and in Judea, maybe even all the way down as far as Egypt. Um, now they're going back. So the captain has got an empty boat. feels like this is going to be a good, uh, mutually beneficial deal for both people. Um, you know, maybe the captain's going to get a little bit of kudos helping out the Romans here, so this is in his interest to do it. All right, so um, So what we find is that this is the way that Paul finally ends uh, his captivity in in Caesarea. He's been there for two years. He's going to end up floating out of the harbor um, in this Adramitian boat. And what I want us to do is pay careful attention uh, to the way that the relationship now between Paul and this Roman centurion, Julius, develops. If you look in uh, chapter 27, verse 1, you can see where the whole thing starts. Um, It's pretty clear. Paul's the prisoner. Julius is the captor. Julius is the authority figure. Paul is the person who's under his authority. But right away we see that even though Julius is his captor, he's not a bad guy. This is not going to be one of those situations like some scene out of Ben-Hur where Paul's down below the waterline chained to an oar or something like that. Um, No, Julius um, treats him with respect, and we can see that right at the beginning of the journey um, because the first stop they make, they start in Caesarea, move around to Sidon there, um, and Julius lets him go on land to see some friends and to get uh, provisions for the journey. So he's not unreasonable, gives Paul a bit of an excursion. And anyway, that's the way that the, um, uh, the journey begins. They set sail then from Sidon, and they're working their way round to this port here, which is called Myra. Okay, so you can see their journey. Around this way. And now you can picture what's going through Julius the Centurion's head. He's thinking, okay, my job is to get my prisoners over here to Italy. The boat comes from Adramitium. I need to be thinking pretty soon about changing in order to actually make this journey work. So he jumps onto the shore at Myra, does the same thing that we saw him do earlier on. He starts talking with the captains, trying to find out whether there are any boats. And once again, he strikes gold. Uh, He finds Uh, an Alexandrian merchant ship, a big boat capable of holding 300 people. It's stacked with grain and passengers, and it's going direct to Italy. So uh, Julius thinks to himself, okay, this looks good. Now we can get a bit of perspective on it here. Here's a mosaic from the time. gives a bit of an idea about what one of these boats would look like. Um, And someone's done us the favor of reconstructing it in a way that we could see. So this is kind of uh, an idea of the boat that Paul and Luke Um, find themselves getting on this Alexandrian merchant ship. You can see for scale, we've got a a Roman soldier sat out there at the end. So it's big. It's like 90 feet long. One massive mast, one huge sail, full of grain down below decks. Um, You'll see the little lifeboat over here, which is important in our story later on. Um, So that's basically what they find themselves, how they find themselves traveling. Okay. So, um, they get on this boat, they leave the port of Myra, heading towards Italy, and this is the point in the story where things start to go wrong. You see, in ancient times, and it's still true now, the Mediterranean is quite a tricky place to be sailing in the winter. The local wisdom said uh, that if you were out on the water of the Mediterranean, any time between November and February, you were basically out of your mind. Um, and the reason for that is that the gentle prevailing wind that comes off the north coast of Africa there can very easily just snap round to be this vicious northeasterly gale called the northeaster it's referred to in our passage. And many boats got wrecked that way, and so basically the way that things ended up working is that sea Kind of traffic and cargo uh, freighting boats across this part of the Mediterranean just stopped in the winter. All the boats would tuck themselves into their nice little winter sheltered ports and then come bobbing out again in March when the weather calmed down. And in the months just before that season set in, so through from September through to November, you had what was known as the risky season. Um, And the risky season is the time when, yeah, you can go out, but you do it at your own risk. Um, and we know from the, the dates that Luke provides in this text, late October, AD 59, they're right in the middle of that risky season, getting towards the end of it, actually. And we can see the signs of that as soon as they step out from Myra on this new boat. So their first stop, if this is Myra, their first stop is to try to reach a place here called cnidus on the southwestern coast of Asia, But what happened is that they're trying to go into this headwind all the way. And when they reached Knittis, they just couldn't actually get the boat into the harbour. They physically couldn't get the wind to get in. So they ended up having to turn around and they're driven south down to a little spot here called Fair Havens on the south coast of Crete. Okay, now Fairhavens isn't a bad place to be necessarily. It is at least a port. You can tie up the boat there. Uh, They were able to get the passengers off. They could have got the cargo off. Um, but the problem with it was that it wasn't a proper sheltered port. Um, It wasn't somewhere they could leave the boat confidently for the winter. And so what you find, and it's important to the story, is to see that the the captain and the owners of the boat are now faced with a really difficult decision. Do they decide to sail on and risk the weather and try and get to somewhere where they can get the boat safe, or do they just tie up at fair havens? get the cargo and the people off, and then maybe come back down to the sea in a march to resume their journey and find that they've just got a kind of pile of floating matchwood. So that's the call that they've got to make. And at that point in the story, we find that Paul comes back into the action. As we go through this, we're going to find that there are two points uh, where Paul seems to receive some kind of direct message from God about what's going to happen to them on the journey. And this is the first Uh, As we read the passage, we find um, that these messages that Paul receives, it's kind of important for us to grasp this. They're not uh, here to set a precedent for for us as to how God will guide us today. So we see this Paul getting a vision or a dream of where he's going to go. It's not that God can't do this kind of thing. He does. But this passage doesn't teach us to expect it. Uh, As we go on, we're going to find that the application of these messages that Paul receives... Um, is really about trusting the promises that God has already given us in the Bible. And we'll get to that as we go through. But anyway, let's just note for the uh, for the record here that Paul rejoins the story and Luke gives him, I guess, the equivalent of that great line from Star Wars, uh, I have a bad feeling about this. So he's, <laughs> he says that to the, to the boat's owner. Um, and at this point, we get our next kind of uh, little uh marker as to the evolving relationship between Julius the centurion and Paul. See, we know Julius is a nice guy. He's seen uh, Paul in action throughout this journey, and yet he still doesn't feel any obligation to listen to Paul whatsoever. Remember, Julius is the authority figure, and Paul is under his authority. So Julius consults the experts. He asks the captain. He asks the people who've probably got the most to lose, the owners of the boat. And together, they decide to risk it they decide to try and get this boat into a safe port. They're not going to try and get to, uh, all the way to Italy. That would be far too dangerous. But they just know that right here, just at the other end of Crete, that little place, Phoenix, there is, there's a sheltered harbor, somewhere where that boat can just stay throughout the winter and be safe and sound. So their plan is simply to do this like a 20-mile jump along the coast and then put into Phoenix and wait out the winter. So that's what they try and do. And as soon as they leave the port of Fairhavens, that's when we join the story. So what we find is that they get out into the open sea, and the wind did the very thing that every sailor on the Mediterranean feared the most. It snapped round to be that vicious northeasterly hurricane. uh, And immediately, um, we find that they're just straight into crisis mode. They're wrestling this boat to try and keep it under the shelter of the island of Crete, but there's no way that they're able to do it, and they just get blown straight out into the open sea. And from this point onwards, for the next 14 days, Luke tells us in the text, uh, our passage turns into something like an extract from a Patrick O'Brien novel. I don't know whether you've seen that great film Master and Commander uh, with... um, who's the guy who's the Russell Crowe, um, where you've got these mountainous seas, you know, stormy black clouds. That's exactly what we're looking at here. Um, we've got a boat um, full of people who are f- just petrified. They've got no idea where they are, uh, no idea whether they might just smash into the coast of North Africa at any moment. Uh, and Luke is able to give us an incredibly vivid account of it because he was actually there. Um, And the way that he does it is by describing to us the increasingly desperate measures that the captain has to take in order to try and save them. So the first thing they do is with that lifeboat. Um, That rope that's holding it onto the back, they think that it's going to break. So they haul the lifeboat in and actually put it on top of the main deck. The next thing they did, we're told, is that they passed strong ropes under the underside of the ship. And the reason they're doing this, they're worried that it's literally going to break apart And you can imagine that's a kind of high-risk move. It involves getting one of your ship hands, passing them the end of a long rope and throwing them over the side. And they have to dive down, swim under the keel and pop back up the other side. And then you pick them out of the water and you do that again and again until you've wrapped rope around the outside of this boat. And you can imagine doing that in a Force 10 gale. The next thing they do, we're told that they put out the sea anchor. Uh, And I guess for us, that's just code To tell us now that their rudder is completely useless and they're frantically doing anything that they can to get control over their direction and their speed. Uh, The next thing that we hear about, and now you can see how desperate things really are, they throw the cargo overboard. So now the owner of the ship is basically willing to uh, kind of sacrifice all of his potential gain from this voyage. And the reason they're doing it is that if you've got a ship that's full of grain, it's heavy. Uh, and as the seas get really big, if, if the boat ends up standing with the, the prow on one wave and the stern on another wave and the air in the middle, it could just snap in the middle. So they're trying to reduce weight, and they throw all the cargo over. And then finally, we're told that they throw the ship's tackle overboard. And what that means is they actually sawed the mast down. So you can see how big that thing was on the original illustration. A 90-foot tree with all of the rigging, all of the canvas on it. They sawed it down. Um, and then uh, naval historians tell us it would have taken probably all of the ship's hands and all of the passengers to even move that thing. And yet they drag that, throw it overboard. So you can picture maybe the scene now if you were there. You've got the, the waves plunging up and down, the storm raging all around you. You can't hear yourself think. Uh, you're cold. There are people who are probably injured by some of this kind of uh, flying debris. Um, you're drenched. You're cold. can't even uh, hear the words of the captain ordering you around, uh, Luke sums it up pretty well, I think in verse twenty when he says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. But then at that moment in the narrative, we see kind of interesting switch in the story. I said, there are two points in this whole thing where Paul hears something directly from God about what 's going to happen. Well, right here at the height of the storm. We find it happens for the second time. In the night, when the boat's being lashed back and forth by the waves, an angel comes and stands next to Paul and tells him not to be afraid. He tells him that he and his companions are going to make it to Rome and that God has graciously given him the lives of everyone who's sailing with him. And Paul seems to have received a vision along with uh, speaking to this angel. Um, He can't tell the captain the details because he doesn't know where the place that he's seen is. He can't put a name to it. But quite clearly, Paul saw how their journey was going to end. He saw an island with a sandbar and the boat run aground on the sand. And he saw that every person on the boat would get to the shore alive. Now, there are quite a few things for us to notice in this section of the text, the piece that we read. First of all, um, I suppose we have to get to grips with the, the fact that Paul seems to play the I told you so card really badly, doesn't he, in verse 21? He stands up and he says, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. And I can picture myself standing there and "Like This is the last thing I want to hear. You know, this guy doesn't even, he isn't even a sailor, and yet he's saying, Oh, it's all your fault. But I think if we look at the story carefully, we can see that there's a lot more to it than that. It's true, Paul's definitely reminding, uh, the the captain and uh, the owners and Julius, if there's any uh, kind of apportioning of responsibility to be done here, it's true. Uh, They did decide to take this risk. But I don't think that's really Paul's point. I think just that knowing that everyone on the boat now is beginning to lose hope. Paul says this because he wants to give them a reason to believe. He's saying to them, look, I know this is crazy. It's true. I'm not a sailor. But I am a servant of the God who made the sea and the land and who controls all the forces of nature. And I'm telling you, he showed me that this storm would happen. Do you remember? And now he's telling me that we're all going to survive. And I know that that sounds unlikely, but listen to me. He was right about the storm. He showed me that it would happen and it did. Trust me. To understand this story correctly, we need to grasp how unlikely what it is that Paul's now uh, telling the, the sailors really is. If we just look at where they are on the map, obviously we can't kind of precisely pin them down, but let's just guess they're somewhere here in the middle of the open ocean. What are the likely ways in which this journey is going to end? Okay, they have no mast, they have no sails. If the storm blows itself out, the, uh, the passage tells us that they're short of food. It's likely that they could all die of starvation in the middle of the ocean, If the storm continues, the boat may well break and sink, and they never be heard of again. If they do make landfall, it's most likely, isn't it, that they're going to smash into the mainland. They're in a northeasterly gale. feels like they're going to smash into the north coast of Africa. The idea that they're going to land on an island is spectacularly unlikely. And when we see the island that God actually has in mind in his vision, uh, then the whole thing becomes even more remarkable. You see, Paul and his shipmates eventually end up running aground on the southwest coast of Malta. Malta's just there, okay? Now, um, perhaps there's a good reason why God didn't tell Paul the name of that island, because this is what the southwest coast of Malta looks like, all right? Mile after mile of vertical cliffs, hundreds of feet high. If Paul had said the name of that island to the sailors, that would have done more to discourage them than having the vision even in the first place. So maybe it is a good thing he didn't tell him. There are only one or two places on that whole south, south, southwestern coast where there's any kind of inlet or a sandy beach. Anyway, the next thing to take notice of is the way that God um, talks to Paul about the passengers on the boat. He says to Paul, I've graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Did you spot that? The word graciously means undeservedly. And that's striking, isn't it? God doesn't think that the passengers on the boat deserve to survive. The reason that they're going to survive is a fruit of God's mercy, not a reflection of what they deserve. Now, although we're not going to camp on this for the rest of the message, this is a really important glimpse right into the heart of the biblical worldview, I guess particularly for any of you who are unfamiliar with it. You see, these passengers were just ordinary men and women like us. We don't know anything about them, but we presume they were just a kind of normal cross-section of society. And yet this is God's verdict on them. They don't deserve to survive. If the boat had sunk, no doubt the press reports would have been very similar to what they are now. Terrible loss of life at sea. Men and women cut off in their prime. But God doesn't agree that it is our prime. He doesn't think that we have a right to the lives that we're living now. He sees our sin. He sees the way that we reject his rule over our lives. He sees sees us cutting him out of the picture. And he sees that as a reason why, by rights, our lives should end. Anything beyond that, any fresh uh, day that we live is given to us graciously. And that is true for us, whether we're on a boat in the middle of a terrible storm or whether we're just living our day-to-day lives here in Grand Rapids. And we need to be careful, don't we, how we use that grace Realizing that each day of life is being extended to us, but not because we deserve it. There's one final thing, though, for us to focus on in this section of the story. And that's just to look at the effect that Paul's words have on the ship's company. It starts with Luke himself. I don't know whether you spotted this in verse 20. Remember what he says? He says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Luke includes himself in the group of people losing hope, doesn't he? But then look how that pronoun changes when we get to the very next verse and Paul gets up to speak. Luke says, Paul stood before them. So Luke no longer places himself with the ship's company losing hope. It's as if he kind of turns himself around and places himself with Paul, addressing them, addressing the rest of the people on the ship with fresh hope. And the same thing, that same transformation, ultimately seems to run all the way through uh, the company on the ship. So in verse 29, we find that they finally find themselves approaching land and the whole ship's company prays. And Julius the centurion himself is clearly touched because look at what happens to him next. When the ship drops anchor, Paul is given the responsibility to tell the people what to do. Isn't that striking? Julius puts his life and the lives of the other people on the boat into, into Paul's hands, and into the hands of Paul's God. Paul tells everyone on the ship to eat something, which is just an amazingly gutsy move, if we understand the story. You see, throughout this chapter, we're being told that food on the boat is running scarce. This is, they drop anchor in the middle of the night. They've got no idea where they are. Um, if the anchors break, or if they wake up in the morning and find themselves facing that, and they have to go back out to sea, their history If they use up their food now. And yet Julius lets him do it. Because he trusts Paul now. He believes in Paul's God. And he lets Paul take the reins. Paul knew that his fellow passengers would need all the strength that they could get. If they were going to be able to swim to the shore. And Julius backed him. Same thing happens in verse 42. In the morning when the sun comes up. And they can see what God has put in front of them. uh, They see that by an amazing stroke of an amazing stroke of God's sovereign control over everything that happens, they've been washed up right opposite a beach, which most historians now think is this place. This is St. Thomas's Bay. Okay, here are the cliffs. But this is where they came, one of the few places on that whole coast where you can actually bring a boat in in safety. Isn't that wonderful and amazing? And as they floated into that cove, and they ran aground on a sandbar, just as Paul had seen his vision. Julius realized that the passengers would now either have to swim or float on driftwood to get to safety. Well, Weatherhead says this is the only real reference to surfing in the Bible. I'll throw that in there for you. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, uh, Julius's soldiers prepared themselves to do the thing which they were trained to do. You see, Roman soldiers transporting prisoners were under instructions just to kill them if it looked at any point like they might escape. And that's exactly what's about to happen here, isn't it? You know, we're a bunch of prisoners saying, don't worry about us, we'll just float to the land and then we'll line up there ready to be taken captive again. Yeah, right. But Julius won't allow them to be killed. Verse 43 tells us that he wanted to spare Paul's life. You see, Julius had come to respect him and it sounds like the other prisoners had too. I don't think Julius saw Paul as an ordinary prisoner anymore. Julius heard the promise that Paul brought from God to the passengers on the boat, unlikely though it seemed, and he believed it. And so he spared Paul's life and all the prisoners made it safely to the land and allowed themselves to be recaptured. So what does all that teach us? Well, I think that answer is a lot. We can flip the lights up now, John, thanks. Let's start with the big picture. Did you notice as we went through that the, the story began with the cast of characters stratified by human categories? We had passengers, prisoners, centurions, sailors, soldiers, each with their own areas of expertise and authority. But now look how the story ends, with people stratified only by God's categories. See, when the pressure comes on, the differences are only between those who know him and those who don't. The Bible teaches us that ultimately our lives and all history will end like that. The only ultimately relevant category in human life is whether we do or don't know the Lord. You see, life has got a way of finding us out. The things that we think are the important items. uh, Am I healthy? Am I attractive? Am I successful? Do people like me? Do I hold an important position of responsibility? Those things can't help but show us how fragile they are when the pressure really comes on. You know, when life pushes us right out over the edge of our own capabilities, we find that nothing, no one except the living God can actually hold us at that point. But if we do know him, if we do know the living God, then things are different. Just look at how that uh, relationship with God affected Paul in this story. See, Paul became a priest to the people on this boat, didn't he? It's almost as if he was God to them. He brought them truth from God. He cared for their physical needs, where most of them were kind of too scared out of their minds to even be thinking rationally about looking after themselves. God enabled him to rise above the fray and serve. He could be useful because he was spared the burden of panicking. He knew that God was in control, so he could serve these people effectively. And there's a profound challenge For each of us there, personally, I think, this is a text that should make us ask, am I like him? Am I living such a transparently God-dependent life that other people can see something different in me? Can they see that I'm unfettered by the world and that I'm tied to something which is completely unshakable and unsinkable? Am I close enough to any non-Christians that they can see that God has his hand on my life? And maybe that they would uh, reach out for that and want that for themselves as well. Can my children see that? Do I let them? Can my friends see it? Do I let them? And does it draw people into my orbit and draw them into the orbit of the God that I serve? Am I being a priest like Paul was to my neighbors and to my neighborhood? Because we better believe that all across the street corners where God has placed us, wherever those are, whatever those look like, there are people who are adrift in the storm. And in those situations, I think God wants us uh, to step up and be poor to those people. But that's not all that we have here in our text today. After the shipwreck and after their dramatic escape um, uh, from uh, the wreck... Uh, We find that um, Paul and his companions ended up spending three months on the island of Malta. And that makes sense, doesn't it? We know that all this happens in AD 59. No more shipping happening until February. uh, So they're stuck there. And Paul, although he's still a prisoner, gets a bit of a respite here from being dragged from place to place by the Romans. um, And he's able to get some opportunities for ministry on the island. And it's kind of nice. It's almost as if Paul's uh, going back to the way that his missionary service began. I don't know whether you remember the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. When they set out, they found themselves unexpectedly on the island of Cyprus um, and God opened up great opportunities for them there. And they witnessed before uh, the governor of the island. Well, the same thing happens here. They end up standing in front of Publius, the chief man of the island of Malta, um, speaking to him, sharing the gospel with him. Uh, And God uses this opportunity, I think, just to underline one more time, this theme that we've seen just repeatedly banging away all the way through the book of Acts, that we can really rely on our apostles and on the things that they taught. You remember in Acts 19, God did extraordinary things through Paul in Ephesus. We're told that even the handkerchiefs that he touched were used by God to heal sicknesses. And now on Malta, we're told that uh, Paul healed the chief man of the island's father, And that after that, the rest of the sick of the island came out to him, and they were all cured. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? It's got Jesus' handprints all over it. If you just kind of squinted it, you think, is it him again? Well, yes, it is. If ever we saw the stamp of uh, authenticity on Jesus' chosen witnesses, we see it here on Malta. And it's good as well, isn't it? Look at what Paul was actually doing. Every one of these healings brought life and hope and restoration to some individual or some family it just brought joy where there have been years of discouragement, hopelessness. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, look, you may be taking my apostle to Rome because you think his influence is so toxic that the only solution is to lock him up and take away his life. But look at what my work is achieving in him and judge for yourselves whether right is on his side or yours. And we can see that that's what was in Luke's mind when we move into the next section of the text with a little detail that he includes. When they finally leave Malta in the march, uh, Luke tells us that they left on a boat in chapter 28 verse 11 that has the twin figureheads of the Roman gods Castor and Pollux carved into it. Now, why does he bother to tell us that? Well, Castor and Pollux were the deities responsible for protecting the innocent and punishing those who made false accusations in court. That's kind of striking, isn't it? That's the banner under which Paul is finally going to arrive in Rome. If you run that to the present day, it would be a, a, like someone arriving for a Supreme Court hearing in a boat called the SS Vindication. Everything about Paul's stay on Malta and this final journey to Rome just shouts God's verdict on the situation. The Jews and the Romans were saying, He's a troublemaker, He's a deceiver, He's a convict. But God said, He's my messenger. He's my ambassador. He's my son. And that finally brings us right into the last section of the text here. And this has been really exciting for me to study over the last couple of weeks because uh, Luke is such a great writer and he just brings everything to this really perfect conclusion as we get to the end of Acts. The story of what happens is fairly simple. When uh, Paul arrived in Rome, we find that he's met on the outskirts of the city by a bunch of Christians from the church there, they, they've heard about his arrival in advance, so they come out to meet him, they've set him up with a nice rented house, um, probably because Julius the Centurion gives such a glowing report on Paul back to the Roman authorities, they give him very lenient terms of house arrest. And we find that he ends up spending two years or more in this rented house before he ends up being dragged off to a, a tougher kind of imprisonment. And here in Rome, he uh, wrote the letters of Philippians and Colossians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Timothy. You'll remember here in Rome, he met again with John Mark after all those years. After their really sad estrangement at the beginning of the second missionary journey, the two men were reconciled here. They worked together. But in our part of the story, Luke doesn't go that far. The, the, the Roman audience of this book know all of that stuff. Uh, he just wants to tell them the very first thing that happened when Paul arrived in Rome. And that's that he called out the Jewish leaders of the city uh, to come and meet him. And in some ways, this is just the good old Paul that we know and love from the missionary journeys, isn't it? You know, Paul's strategy is always to uh, go to the synagogue first. And he doesn't like a small, let a small matter like being held under house arrest by the Romans slow him down. It's like, oh, well, if I can't get to the synagogue, I'll have the synagogue come to me. So out they come. And um, the start point for the conversation makes a lot of sense as well, now that we've read the rest of the book of Acts. Turns out the Jews in Rome weren't that kind of up to speed with what was happening in Jerusalem. They didn't know the details of the charges against Paul. But what they did know is that Paul was a prominent Christian who was just about to be tried in front of the emperor, and that was making them feel pretty nervous. And we know why. Do you remember the Priscilla and Aquila story? We know. Uh, a little bit, don't we, about what life was like for Jews in Rome. They had a very precarious relationship with the authorities there. We know that they've been all chucked out of the city at least once in the recent past. That's how Priscilla and Aquila ended up in Corinth. So we can imagine that um, these Jews were just worried that if Paul took the stand in front of the emperor and was asked to make a case for Christianity and to uh, explain all the difficulties he had been having with the Jews, things might get pretty bad for them again. But in chapter 28, verse 19, you'll see that Paul's uh, got a heart to reassure them. He doesn't want to make trouble for the Jews, quite the opposite. He's come to bring them, actually, the most wonderful news imaginable. He's come to tell them that the promises that they have cherished for generations, the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's come to tell them that they've been fulfilled at last and that God has established his kingdom Striking the way that Paul opens this theme up here. If you look in uh, chapter 28, verse 23, Luke tells us this. Paul witnessed to them, this is the Jewish leaders, he witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. And then at the end of the section in verse 30 and 31, he tells us that for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. And taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's striking because this is actually exactly the same way that the book of Acts started. If you flip back with me to Acts chapter 1, um, in that very first paragraph, Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Luke begins by saying that after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to the disciples he appeared and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about, the kingdom of God. So Luke clearly thinks that the kingdom of God is central to this whole book that he's writing. And clearly that message was weighing really heavy on Paul's heart as he was getting close to the end of his ministry. But what actually is it? What is the kingdom of God? Well, Luke himself provides the answer. In Acts 1-3, He tells us that the kingdom of God was the major subject of Jesus' teaching during the last 40 days that he spent with his disciples after the resurrection. Well, we have an account of those 40 days, don't we? The Gospels give us that, one of them coming from Luke's own hand. So if you turn to that now, go to Luke 24, and look, what did it look like for Jesus to be teaching about the kingdom of God? Luke provides us just with two vignettes. One of them is Jesus on the road to Emmaus, And the other one is then Jesus teaching the disciples in the house where they were staying in Jerusalem. And those two stories have something very common, very, very clearly in common. Just just listen to it. On the road to Emmaus, you'll remember we have Jesus meeting his two followers who've kind of trudging disconsolately away from Jerusalem, having witnessed the crucifixion, believing that all of their hopes in Jesus had been misplaced. Uh, They hadn't heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. Uh, But now. Uh, embarrassingly, without realising it, they find themselves actually walking with Jesus. So they start talking and they tell their unknown travelling companion just how terrible life is and all the dreadful things that they've seen and how sad and disillusioned they feel. Um, (laughs) And then in chapter 24, verse 25, Jesus says to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer? These things and then enter his glory. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Then later, Jesus comes to the disciples where they're staying. He shows them his scars. Uh, He eats some food to prove to them that he's really risen from the dead. And then in verse 44, so this is Luke 24, verse 44. He begins exactly the same conversation with them that he's just had with the uh, disciples that he met on the road to Emmaus. Everything that you've just lived through, says Jesus, these are the things I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So that's what Luke had in mind when he wrote Acts 1-3. When he tells us that Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God, he's telling us that Jesus spent his time opening up the promises of the Old Testament that pointed to him. So that's it. The kingdom of God is the entire expectation that the Old Testament raises for the Messiah and for all that God planned to accomplish through him. It's the testimony of the history of Israel. It's the testimony of Israel's prophets, that God would not let sin have the ultimate victory, that he would redeem the world, that he would restore Eden. The kingdom of God is the amazing, unbelievable, too-good-to-be-true promise that God planned to buy back His special people to live in His special place, so that they could experience the blessing of His presence and His rule over them, and be a blessing to the world. That's the story. That, uh, sorry, that's what the story of the people of Israel foreshadowed. That's what Moses and the prophets foresaw, and that's what Paul has in mind here, as our, in our um, text in Acts twenty-eight. Just read that last part of uh, Acts 28, verse 23 with me again. Acts twenty-eight twenty-three. Paul witnessed to the Jewish leaders in Rome from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. So do you see how all of that dovetails together? So as the book of Acts closes, can you see that Paul is summarizing now the whole story as the fulfillment of this promise of the kingdom of God? And now we hear him challenging his Jewish audience and through Luke challenging us to put our hope in that promise. And in God's providence, the events of the shipwreck that we've just read about provide us with the perfect illustration of that challenge. You see, in chapter 27, an unlikely sounding promise was offered to the passengers on the boat, wasn't it? They were, though they were floating adrift in the middle of the Mediterranean with no idea where they were, God promised them that they would run aground on an island. And that even though that island was ringed with cliffs, they would find the one spot where there was a bay and there was a sandy beach and safety. It sounded incredibly far-fetched to the people who heard it. But God fulfilled that promise. Not one person on that boat was lost. But now in chapter 28, an unlikely sounding promise is being made to us. Paul is trying to persuade us that the entire weight of the expectations of the Old Testament, the hope that one day human suffering will end, the hope that our sins, all those things that weigh on us, that haunt us, that they can be forgiven and wiped out, the hope that one day we will be raised from the dead. Paul wants to persuade us that all these hopes are met in his master, the crucified carpenter from Nazareth. And like the promise that God made to the people on the boat, all that can sound a bit far-fetched, can't it? It can all seem about a bit abstract, a bit nonspecific, a bit optimistic when we're being blown here and there by the storms of life and when we're looking forward to the prospect of death that maybe just looks to us like a wall of uninterrupted cliffs. But just like the promise of safety that God spoke to the sailors, the promise of the kingdom of God, is unlikely but true. In God's hands, life will ultimately teach each one of us the same lesson that the storm taught Julius. We aren't able to control the risks ahead of us. We aren't able to overcome all the dangers that we will face alone. We're not equipped to navigate our way through life or to come to a safe harbor at the end of it. We're adrift. We don't know where we are or where we're going. But God sees what's ahead of us and he can bring us to safety. And like the sailors, that faces us with a challenge. You see, the Bible teaches us that getting to that safety involves venturing everything we have on God's promises. We need to start making our decisions and building our plans on the assumption that God's promises will prove true. We need to trust him that in amongst the cliffs that we see ahead of us, There is a safe harbor. We need to surrender our control and lay down our expertise at his feet and watch God turn our hopeless situations into demonstrations of the fact that he alone knows how to save. And if we do, we won't be disappointed. That's my testimony. I know that it's many of your testimonies too. Because that is the promise of the gospel. The gospel promises us that beyond the storms of this life, There is a beach and a land and a place where all our tears will be wiped away. It's called the kingdom of God. And the way into it is simply trusting the one who made all of its promises come true. The king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God in heaven, I just bless you for this text. It moves me to the core of my being just to see this amazing illustration of the truth which is before every single one of us. God, that even though it seems so unlikely and even though we are so lost whether we know it or not, you can guide us to everlasting safety. You can lift us out of all the wretched mistakes we've made in this life or lift us out of the wretched self-dependence that doesn't acknowledge that they exist and bring us into your heaven forever. And God, I pray so much that you would please help every single one of us to latch on to those promises. And God, I pray that for the journey that we're on, that we might be, that we might step up and be priests to the people around us, that we might be spared the burden of panicking. We don't have to. You've got our lives in your hands. And God, I pray that you would lead other people with us into that bay, into that safety, into your arms, into your heaven. In Jesus' name, Amen. Neil, just a second. I, I just, I'm just sensing here. Uh, um, don't leave.